Hey there, listeners of Flyover Country, bringing you another special episode this week. Our own Scott Jennings was able to join the Inside the Newsroom podcast with our good friend Josh Kroshauer this week to talk a little bit about Iowa caucus and some other sort of political things going on. Of course, with so much going on, GOP primary and voting starting to happen this week, we wanted to bring you as much content as possible. So we're doing a little cross promotion this week with Inside the Newsroom and our friends over at Jewish Insider. So thanks to Josh for having Scott on this week. And without further ado, we'll get right to the episode. Here is Scott Jennings on Inside the Newsroom. Here we go. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Welcome to our latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's Jewish Insider's weekly interview series with top newsmakers, political analysts, policymakers, all the important folks that uh, are, are regular readers and also people we talk to for our top-notch news coverage here at JI. I'm Josh Krausar, Editor-in-Chief at Jewish Insider. I'm very pleased to be joined today of live, I believe, from O'Hare Airport in Chicago. My good friend, one of the best political analysts in the business, Scott Jennings, who you can see uh, all the time on, on CNN. He's one of the most prolific and, and most on-the-money on the political commentators, certainly on the Republican side of, of the aisle. He's also the founding partner at the, the public relations firm Run Switch. Uh, Scott is on his way to Iowa. You'll you'll be seeing him in Iowa for CNN's uh, caucus coverage. But it's great to have you on the uh, the show today on the webinar. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate being here. Yeah, it's been the it's been quite a quite a morning trying to get to Iowa, and uh, I'm happy to join you from Chicago and with, with all the other stranded travelers who are <laughs> who are headed to the Midwest. We're making the best of it, though. This uh, this conversation certainly helps. Well, and just as a reminder to anyone here on on, on the webinar, you can ask questions in the chat box, the Q&A box uh, below on your Zoom uh, screen, and I will be trying to take take as many questions as I can uh, in our in our conversation. But boy, we do have a lot to talk about just to, just to get going. It's hard to believe. Happy New Year. 2024 is upon us. And boy, six days away till, till the uh, Iowa caucuses. New Hampshire is uh, the primaries in New Hampshire the week right after. Where do things stand? Where where does the Republican primary fight stand? Is Donald Trump the the heavy heavy favorite to be the nominee again, or do you see some surprises that could come ahead in the next few weeks? Well, I, I, obviously, I know we run these things state by state, and it's right to talk about the different dynamics in Iowa versus New Hampshire. But I do think where I start in this conversation is to level set the national playing field. You know, about two thirds, I think, of Republicans nationally say they prefer Donald Trump to be the nominee of the Republican Party. And as you just pointed out, we're mere days away from when the voting starts. Trump has been at the top of the party, controls the party, and is the preferred choice of the party uh, over the last several years and up until to this day, uh, and is not really getting any more unpopular. In fact, he's getting more popular. And so when I think about what could happen in an individual state, I always go back to thinking about Nationally, how weird or unprecedented would it be for a party who has two thirds of its members that want to nominate somebody and that person somehow doesn't get the nomination? It strikes me as almost unthinkable. So that's where I start. I mean, you'd be asking this party to turn on a dime when it hasn't turned an inch since 2016. And so that's where I start. That having been said, we're here to cover Iowa (laughs) and New Hampshire. And, you know, I think I think if I'm DeSantis and Haley, obviously you're you're staring down what appears to be a juggernaut in Iowa in Donald Trump. He is quite popular. Uh, I think he's going to do quite well. And I think he probably has the best organized campaign and the best campaign team that he's had in three tries. And I think that's manifesting itself uh, overall, but 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 specifically in Iowa. So how do you keep the ball bouncing is the question for DeSantis and Haley. And I think. You know, for DeSantis, could you drag Trump underneath 12? 12, I think, is the number Trump's going to throw out. If they beat 12 as a margin of victory. As the margin, as the margin, not not the, Right. Not, yeah. They're going to call that historic because no one's won by more than 12 before. But if you go underneath that, that, that would be an underperformance, right? And so, you know, that's how you would think about trying to keep the ball bouncing if you're DeSantis. If you're Haley and you uh, are trying to set expectations or, or beat expectations. If you were to somehow finish second, that was not expected a month ago. Uh, 
even if she's way far back, you know, that could be spun as some kind of momentum heading into New Hampshire, uh, which we can talk about next. But it strikes me that uh, Donald Trump is is on track to win Iowa by a fairly large margin. And the real question is, will the people in Iowa jump up and surprise us? I mean, we can see the data and we can hear what we hear, but, you know, they still have to walk in those gyms and in those community centers and make these choices. And um, that's what Ron DeSantis is hoping for, trying to recreate that, I guess, Ted Cruz type magic from uh, 2016, where organization overcomes, um, you know, popular support. So conceding that Trump is overwhelmingly favored to, to win, and we'll see what the margin ends up being, if that's the case, who would you rather be? Who, who, who would you rather be in the battle for second place? Would, you mentioned DeSantis's uh, organization. He's put all his chips in the Iowa basket. He's only really spending money in Iowa. He's got the endorsement of the governor, Kim Reynolds. Uh, also, Bob Vanderplatz, one of the most important Christian conservative leaders of the state. Or would you rather be Haley, who seems to be the candidate with the momentum, at least getting getting some, at least compared to DeSantis, has a lot of, uh, of you know, fundraising numbers and uncertainly political momentum in the polls in the final few weeks? I think I'd rather be knowing everything I know and have seen and heard. I think I'd rather be DeSantis. Uh, I, I do put a lot of stock into organization and I do put a lot of stock into his performance as of late. I actually think he's run. I mean, if you just look at the last couple of months, his town hall meetings have been very crisp. Uh, you know, the his handling of, of things that have come up in the campaign. has been very sharp. He hasn't really made any mistakes, no real gaffes. Um, I think I'd rather be him, but but it strikes me that they're very close together. You know, it's hard to say, you know, who's who's in, in front of who. I mean, it is absolutely true. Haley is peaking at the right time um, right now. And I do hear from people out there that, that they think she's going to do quite well in the metro areas. The rural areas, not quite so sure. I mean, that's the one thing about DeSantis, where he's probably primed to do the best. Well, that's where Trump's going to do the best. You know, so he's really fighting a very, very popular person. You know, the the benefit of being Haley right now is that she doesn't really have the same problem in Iowa that she has in New Hampshire, which is Chris Christie, you know, dragging her down. She sort of occupies a space all to her own. I was talking to someone about the race earlier today, and she said, well, who, you know, who is Nikki Haley's candidacy for? And I said, well, if you've ever sat through a Chamber of Commerce meeting or been to a real estate, you know, like continuing education seminar, this is the, you know, this is the candidacy for you. Well, there's no one else in that space in Iowa. And so I suspect in the suburbs around the metro area, she's going to do well with the college educated uh, voters and such. The enduring question about her campaign has always been, are there enough Republicans left who actually want to nominate someone from the pre-Trump era? Or is that is that just a such a small portion of people now that that's not even possible? And I guess we're going to find out uh, shortly how many of those folks are actually left. Well, that's a great point because it, it raises a bigger question, which is what what does the Republican Party stand for in 2024? I mean, when I was in Iowa in 2016, when we had a compet- last competitive primary, Marco Rubio was offering a very similar message to Nikki Haley, but it was also Jeb Bush. It was also John Kasich, or he wasn't really doing a whole lot in Iowa, but it was it was, it was the lot more market share for that Chamber of Commerce uh, kind of good, good government uh, traditional concern. You, you, you know, but you know, the Bush message, uh, yeah. pre-Trump. What, is, is that not viable anymore? Can you not win a, a Republican nomination by kind of, you know, articulating the issues and messages that were once dominant issues in the party a few years ago or before Trump? Well, uh, I, I think the I think the ability to win primaries right now is less about your ability to articulate specific issues and more about your ability to communicate a certain attitude or a certain vibe. I mean, that, that's the that's the thing about the, the Trump era of the Republican Party is you have to carry a certain attitude or a vibe about your willingness to recognize that most Republicans think they are surrounded culturally, institutionally. You know, they look around and they see the universities where we send our students. You can see what's happening there. The corporations where we used to aspire to work, completely radicalized. The media, which we used to trust to give us information, completely in the tank for the other side. So, you know, everywhere I think the modern Republican looks in our culture and in our society, they feel surrounded. And so I think when you're running, um, you have to be able to articulate that you're going to fight these people on all sides all the time. And, and I suspect if you asked the average Republican voter, they would say the problem with the pre-Trump era politicians is 
we never perceived or we don't perceive that they have it in them to fight in the way that you have to fight today in order to keep up with the culture the way it is. So that has nothing to do with an issue necessarily. It just has to do with the perception of your ability to keep up with that vibe. I do think on a couple of issues, though, the, the, the tension that exists in this primary, and it's principally around Haley's candidacy, is on foreign policy. She's, she's the only one articulating a pre-Trump foreign policy that supports intervention, and at least uh, with money and support in Ukraine, supports being all in on helping Israel, uh, supports the traditional role of America in the world. Uh, I mean, you've got Trump, and he's been a little all over the place in terms of his record and his statements. You've got DeSantis, who's been skeptical of Ukraine. You've got Ramaswamy saying he's going to pull out of NATO. Uh, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got a, a, a very real isolationist strain that's dominating most of these campaigns. It's not in Haley. Uh, so that's that's really one of the main tension points, in my opinion, about where you're seeing this this divide between the old guard and the new guard play out. How do you, this is more of a policy question, but it's obviously in the sweet spot of our, our audience. Like, how does that isolationism, the growing isolationism, Politically, we're talking politically. How does that play out in support for Israel? I mean, that's always been sort of a staple of Republican, even now. I mean, you're not even, even Ramaswamy has been sort of trying to figure out a way to sort of thread the isolationism needle with with, with support for Israel. But um, the, where, where does the future? What does the what do the trends indicate in, in your mind? I mean, my, my fear is is that the natural conclusion of this attitude is that we do nothing anywhere. That we we conclude that there is no role for America in the world uh, when her friends and allies are threatened. Uh, or uh, under siege from terrorists. Um, I mean, to me, that that is where this all winds up, is that we are purely an isolated, diminished power, and that we just don't see any utility in in having the kinds of alliances and world stability that uh, we've built and have been the head of uh, since the end of World War II. I I think that's where we are headed. I mean, obviously, uh, in the Republican Party right now, most people say they support Israel. Most people say they want to help Israel fight these terrorists, but you can easily see a world where in four, eight, 12 years, if this strain becomes the dominant strain, you know, there's always going to be somebody who wants to take it a step further. And I mean, look at Ramaswamy, you know, he, you know, it's sort of running as a Trump surrogate uh, or a Trump lackey in this campaign, but, but he's out openly saying he wants to pull out of NATO. I mean, Trump made noise about it, but obviously he didn't do it. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who wants to be more, who wants to go farther on an issue because it's a way to say these other guys, they're not tough enough. You know, they're, they, they don't have it in them to go all the way. Well, if this is one of the dominant debates of our party's future, somebody's going to want to go all the way. And, uh, and that's what I fear. So if, if you're a supporter of Israel, like I am, if you're a supporter of the United States maintaining world stability, like I am, the fear is uh, you have a major political party that doesn't believe that there's any utility in that anymore. And I think that would be a travesty, frankly. We have a question on this issue from, from the comments. Uh, generally, just asking, what, how do you see an end? It's sort of a, a substantive question. Well, how do you see an end to sort of the war in Ukraine and Russia? But I think let me let me just kind of pivot it to politics. I mean, the short term politics clearly moving, as you've noted, Scott, mm. but against funding Ukraine, want to want to have some whatever settlement or or just not not have the US involved to the extent it has been. But like what it, what is what is the end game if if things get really bad if Russia you know starts making gains and you really do see threats to NATO countries and things getting getting worse. Uh, where does that you know what is what is the political implications for the Republican Party in taking an isolationist position? Well, I think the political end game sadly here in the United States is is if we don't get in this upcoming deal that Congress needs to cut to keep the, the government running. Right. If we don't get support for Ukraine now, I think the, the sad end is going to be our support just peters out and Europe is going to wind up and, and they are, you know, taking on an increasing share of dealing with this and they should do their part. Uh, but but for us here in the United States, with the mood in the Republican Party on this issue, and, and honestly, I even think the mood among some quarters of Democrats and independents sort of getting tired of this and not not seeing this as as important as other things, I think the end is we just basically slink away and hope that Europe is able to help Ukraine stave off uh, full Russian takeover of Ukraine. I think, in my opinion, the president, it's his job to articulate clearly to the American people why this is vital and why we have to stay in. 
I think he's always been one step slow on this issue. I think he was slow to send them some of the weapons they needed early on. I think he was slow to send them the Jets, and I think he's been slow to be articulate about why we have to stay in this, and I think it shows in the public opinion polling. So my my thinking is the end, a slow slinking away, uh, and, and lots of hopes and prayers for the people of Ukraine, which will be cold comfort when the Russians come rolling rolling over the countryside. Thinking with foreign policy, the, the coalition politics on the other side is also fascinating when it, kind of alarming uh, as well when you look at Israel and how you have this left wing, the squad, um, trying to uh, you know call for ceasefires, you know not not condemn Hamas. It's it's been pretty pretty eye opening, I know, to, to a lot of our audience. But Biden has been pretty stalwart, it's, and you know against a lot of odds, he's been pretty much uh, supportive of Israel's uh, at least on the, on the ability to take out Hamas, giving them quite a lot of time to continue their military mission. Uh, against Hamas and Gaza, but what do you make of the? I mean, how does that affect 2024 politics? Like, you know, the the coalition, the Democratic coalition that Biden put together, especially on the left, is starting to, to, to fray and fall apart. And what do you make of how that holds up in the next year? I, well, you say he's been stalwart, and I think right out of the gate he was. I think he's softened over time. I think he's been responding to the political pressures in his own party. Sadly, um, I think there have been some actual stalwarts. John Fetterman is one who I just want to personally say, you know, has done an amazing job uh, being steadfast in his support here. And and it should be recognized. But I think Biden is is in a really tough spot. I mean, huge percentages of his political base, his young political base are mad at him over this. And it's not just that they don't want to do anything. They support the other team. <laughs> they support Hamas. They support uh, the aims of people who say they want to end Israel and that uh, the Jewish people are in the wrong here. And that, I mean, they believe, you know, QAnon type conspiracies about, uh, uh, you know, all these sexual assaults didn't really happen. And, you know, these babies weren't really killed. And these, I mean, they, I mean, they're going to like city council meetings and screaming about these things right now. I mean, they are conspiracy theorists. They are unhinged. But unfortunately for Joe Biden, they're his people. I find it amazing, frankly, that he launched his first campaign for president uh, on the issue of Charlottesville and, and the idea that we had to stamp out this kind of hate in America. Well, brother, we're having a thousand Charlottesvilles every day in this country on campuses and in cities and everywhere else. He's totally failed at this. And I, my thinking is, as he goes on through this campaign and these polling issues with these young voters persist, he's going to be really pulled. I saw an article the other day about his own campaign staff sent an anonymously signed letter to him demanding that he call for a ceasefire. And they were saying, oh, all of our volunteers are leaving the headquarters. I mean, th these are not isolated pockets of anti-Semitism. These are massive movements of people in the progressive coalition who I think are purely motivated by anti-Semitism. And I don't. I don't think he's fully grasped that yet. I think his heart and his instincts are to be for Israel. And I think his political advisors are not in the same place. And, I mean, look at the podium every day. Kirby gets it. Does Kareem? Does Kareem? Yeah. Of course not. And so that, that right there is like a is sort of a microcosm of what he's dealing with in, in trying to hold together a coalition. Uh, and it's sad. I'm, I'm sad for him uh, because he's now presiding over a political party uh, that's harboring some very nasty anti-Semitism and some very nasty conspiracy theories. But like I said, there have been a few Democrats that stand out to me. Fetterman is one and, and, uh, and they deserve to be lifted up by Republicans because this is not a partisan issue in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we've covered it. It's interesting that you have this faction, you have this very loud faction, but you have folks like Fetterman, Richie Torres, you know, we've covered Gottheimer. I mean, there, there are notable, well, especially in the Senate, you also have a lot of folks who understand the politics, understand that, you know, you need to win majorities to, to be successful. But um, let me ask you, just you have some experience on campuses. You've done a little bit of teaching lately uh, at Harvard, uh, I believe, not that long ago. Um, yeah. What is your read, just from your experience? I'm curious, like I, I'm an older millennial and some of the trends are sort of shocking to me, like that, that you're seeing among the 18 to 24 year old cohort in the polls anecdotally. What, what are you, what's your sense from your own experience and, and, and kind of this generation? that is coming on up through the campuses. Well, I think um, I think where they are getting their information, TikTok and other sources, is giving them an extraordinarily warped view of 
the realities of this world, no more so than how they should be thinking about this conflict. When you combine that with the DEI regimes on these campuses, which I think foment, frankly, this concept that in every situation there is the oppressed and there's the oppressor, and they foment the idea that the Jewish people are oppressors. So they're getting this stream of information, and then they're in an in an academic environment, which is propelling that forward. And you can easily see how ugly and nasty these campuses have got. You can see why they've gotten that way. I think in the case of um, President, former President Gay at Harvard, I think when you when she sat and these other college presidents too, when they sat in front of Congress and and completely screwed up and and how they answered those questions uh, about genocide against the Jewish people. What I saw in their eyes was, and I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they aren't personally anti-Semites, but you know what? I think they're hostages to people who are, and that's the problem, is somewhere in the back of all their minds, they're thinking, well, if I give full-throated support uh, uh, to the Jewish people here and and talk about how terrible uh, these things that have happened are, I'm going to have a whole constituency in my office or on my campus that are going to be upset with me. You, you could tell that was the fear they were having as they tried to parse those answers. And, and I think what we should expect out of academic administrators and, 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 and political leaders is some moral clarity here about what has happened. And, and, and those are simple questions to answer. Would it be wrong for people to call for genocide against the Jewish people? Would that be wrong? Of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, how can you how can you come up with a different? I mean, it's the easiest question to answer, but the fact that they couldn't, I think, gives you a window into the different equities and constituencies that they have and had to get the jobs that they have to deal with every day. I I thought it was pathetic, and I think she deserved to lose her job over the hearing. I think she ultimately lost her job because of the plagiarism issues. Uh, but I'm glad people are holding this sort of undercurrent of anti-Semitism up to the light on college campuses, because I think American parents need to know what they're sending their children into right now. And, and some of it's pretty ugly. Have you ever seen a hearing, a congressional hearing, where you had two two of the three college presidents at the top schools in the country? They're gone. I mean, Gay and, and also Liz, uh, Liz McGill and, and Penn, who lost the support of even, you know, the Democratic governor of her own you know state. Mm. Uh, but that, that I've never I mean, usually these hearings are great. You know, you kind of expect the partisan back and forth. You know, people are actually appropriately like giving good responses or at least fending off some of the, the heated questions from lawmakers. And this was about as disastrous as you could. I mean, they, they I, apparently they got advice from some of the top, uh, they should, they should talk to run switch. And I don't know who, who in DC was giving them advice on how to answer these questions. Yeah. I can tell you it'd been a lot cheaper. <laughs> of course it costs nothing to just sit, sit down for five minutes and think about what is the correct moral position you know, what is the obvious common sense position? Right. It costs you nothing to sit down and have that conversation with yourself. And and the idea that you were going to try to parse words and parse language over this, again, I just, I, I go back to, even if they aren't personally anti-Semitic, they obviously have people in their orbits on the back end of these universities that clearly, clearly want universities to be working against the Jewish people, discriminating against Jewish people and students, and fomenting the kinds of nasty protests that we've seen on these campuses. And they were clearly worried about what they were going to walk into if they went too far. And I think you have politicians that have the same thing. You know, they they probably know what the right answer is, but they're petrified of their constituents. Uh, and on a college campus, some of these constituencies can get pretty weird. So I, uh, I, I think accountability is needed here. But there, look, the truth is we got a lot farther to go. These aren't the only colleges where these kinds of ideas are circulating in the background. Well, and that's a, such an important point, because the constituencies on campus are so disconnected from the larger constituencies that it takes to win an election, for example, and I want, I mean, I, you know, you, I was wondering on a lot of these issues, when does that come to a head, right? When, when do these like subcultures, these you know, echo chambers, we see this on both sides, like left, right, extremes online. When does that kind of come to a head with the mainstream majority when people see, and that, that was an example, I think, I'm curious 
like what you think is how when does democracy when people talk about democracy a lot these days when does democracy actually weigh in and you have the 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 views of the average american saying hey this is whoa this is way beyond the pale well we may see we may see some of this splintering uh manifest itself if any of these third party candidates can get on the ballot in enough states you could see easily how some of these uh factions of young democrats decide to vote for somebody else other than joe biden uh, I mean, you you could see people who are all bent out of shape on these issues, uh, who aren't satisfied uh, with Joe Biden having even a little bit of support for Israel, going for Cornell West or you know some other direction. So we actually may see this this year. I'm you know the ballot access is difficult and it's it's hard to get on ballots in every state, but uh, you know you could easily see how there's some people in and around I don't know Madison, Wisconsin, who <laughs> who might splinter with the Democrats over over these matters. And that's why ultimately I'm fearful about where Joe Biden could be headed here because he can't afford to bleed too many folks here. I mean, he's in rough shape as it is into uh, into bleed huge chunks of young voters at a time when he's already bleeding, you know, huge chunks of, of traditional working class minority voters uh, that, that won't be acceptable to his campaign. So I'm uh, I'm I'm, for him, I think that's a huge, huge problem. These third parties, huge problem, because those are the kinds of people that would be appealing to yeah. the folks that you're seeing out, you know, protesting in front of the DNC headquarters or or whatever, <laughs> you know, they're doing this week or blocking getting on the Holland Tunnel in New York City, which they were doing this week. I mean, I mean, those are the people that Joe Biden is freaking out about right now. What are the odds you think, you know, a lot about political history that we're having a convention for the Democrats in Chicago? There's a lot of red room. You know, read, read my history. 1968 come, comes to mind. Uh, we've seen these protests in blue, you know, deep blue spaces over the last three months. What what, what are the odds you think that you could see just a rupture, uh, you know, you know, a violent rupture at, at you know Chicago? And you're in Chicago right now. I don't no, don't speak too loud in the in the in the yeah, but yeah. like Chicago does have so much resonance to you know where the Democratic Party uh, kind of divides uh, on, on some of these issues. I don't know how likely it is that the party itself would rupture and try to go in a different direction than the sitting president of the United States. That seems crazy to me, but I do think it's highly likely that that convention is going to be mass protested by all kinds of people. And a lot of them are going to be anti-Israel people uh, every day, (laughs) all day, every day. There's going to be disruptions uh, or worse. And so at a minimum, I think you could see heavy disruptions. Now, they'll probably come to the Republican convention as well. Uh, but the problem is at the Democrat convention, there'll be people inside the hall who are sympathetic to them. At the Republican convention, they're not going to find that too much. But at the Democrat convention, there'll be people, uh, high level Democrats who are sympathetic uh, to these to these folks, which will be a major, major image and messaging headache for the White House. So let's we, we talked about Iowa at the beginning. New Hampshire is sort of that 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 state that where actually you do have the first Demo- even though it's unsanctioned you do have the one of the first Democratic primaries in the country along with uh, South Carolina for the Democrats and you also have a big Republican primary that has a much more moderate open uh, elector an open primary system um, give give us you know like your sense of where things stand in in New Hampshire what, whether you think Biden I guess he's not really running but there's a writing mm-hmm. effort and Dean Phillips is doing something there. Um, and then we can talk about the Republican field and, and whether you think how different that's going to be in New Hampshire than Iowa. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm afraid my analysis go- is going to be influenced by what I read right before we we got on the the Zoom here. And poor Dean Phillips was trying to have an event this morning in New Hampshire, and literally nobody showed up. <laughs> and so it, it doesn't feel like he's he's caught on uh, over there. Uh, so I, you know, wither Dean Phillips, I think. Um, but the the president's real problem, though, he was trying to solve this week in South Carolina, and that is the flight of African-American and particularly African-American men from the Democratic Party. That's his real issue right now, I think, and as he thinks about about his coalition. So, uh, you know, I, I I don't it doesn't feel like Dean Phillips has been able to put it together or captivate, you know, people uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, but it but it also concurrently feels like Joe Biden is worried enough about his own coalition and how he actually got the nomination in 2020 that he's engaging in in places like South Carolina. So um, I don't think Phillips's failure has necessarily been Biden's boon. It's just uh, Phillips wasn't quite a good enough political talent to make a run at a sitting president.
so let's game out Iowa and then go into New Hampshire for the Republicans. You've got, let's say it's a, a dead heat for a second, Haley and uh, DeSantis will behind Donald Trump. How the, What does that mean for New Hampshire? Like, well, 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 how much different is New Hampshire from Iowa? Obviously a much more moderate electorate. Mm. Different moderate. issues at play. Yeah, more moderate. And, and I would think for Haley, uh, New Hampshire will be the best playing field she gets anywhere on the map. You've got a more moderate electorate among the Republicans. You've got independents that can come in. They don't have a reason to vote Democrat this time. So th- this is going to be her Alamo because it's it's the best. This is the best it's ever going to be. Um, so she's got to get close. I, you know, I think if she doesn't win New Hampshire, she has to make a real choice about whether she wants to head on down eventually to South Carolina and take what I imagine will be a walloping from Trump in her own home state. Yeah. And that's the problem with this whole thing. Even if DeSantis keeps the ball bouncing out of Iowa, and even if Haley keeps the ball bouncing out of New Hampshire, eventually it's going to start bouncing on a bunch of very sharp spikes. <laughs> when you get out into these other primary states, some are closed. It's just Republicans. Republicans love Trump. And so I I feel like they're, it's going to the, the level of difficulty is going to get really, really high to try to keep it going uh, forever. Also for Haley in New Hampshire, of course, she continues to be plagued by Chris Christie, who, who will not get out of the race, despite clear polling evidence that it might make a difference if he did. And uh, and her inability to, to get that done has been kind of fascinating. Maybe he's waiting to see what happens in Iowa. But if he but he's not in, he's not competing, he's not even in Iowa. He's never been in Iowa for the. I know. Maybe he's waiting to see how she does. You know, what if what if she yeah. trips up and, and finishes a strong second? You know, if you're Chris Christie the next day, you wake up and say, "Okay, gosh, you know, maybe there's a chance here. Uh, But but he has been so strident in his (laughs) saying no to this that it seems uh, it seems hard to imagine that he would go back on it now. Um, If she were to somehow win New Hampshire, even with Christie in the race, that would be quite a feat. Very difficult to do that, but it would be quite a feat if she did that. Why do you think Christie, given that his campaign is like, let's stop Trump, I'm in this race to stop Trump. If he's the one who could hand Trump a victory in New Hampshire, why do you think he's he's sticking around? I mean, I take him at his word. I think he thinks the rest of these people are just going to roll over for Trump and do anything Trump would do or want them to do. And he's the only one running the pure truth-telling campaign. And I think there's a bit of an ego about it um, that, you know, he's the pure uh, antithesis to, to Trump. And that I think he's probably offended that people are viewing Haley that way when he believes she's just going to be malleable to, you know, the, the Trump world order eventually anyway. So that's my assumption. Uh, but but make no mistake, mathematically, what he is doing is counterproductive, detrimental, and potentially fatal to the stated goal of his campaign of ending Donald Trump's time and on the stage in the Republican Party and in our national politics. This is just thinking about sort of the Republican primary in 2016 and now here in 2024 where Christie could be the factor that just prevented both. Yeah. He, he just shivved Rubio in the New Hampshire, New Hampshire debate. Great, great, great prosecutorial moment, but obviously it was a big boost to Trump in that, in that race. And then we'll see what happens here in New Hampshire in 2024. But you know, I also contrasted to back in 2020 when Amy Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the, even though they did you know decently and actually quite well in New Hampshire, uh, they decided to drop out later on post South Carolina um, to give Biden the boost ahead of Super Tuesday against Bernie and and, and Warren and so on. Like, what is there more teamwork? Is there more of a you know collaborative spirit in the Democratic Party playing ahead of the individual interests and kind of doing things for the party, or is that just you know am I just overreacting that? It, it's just in the in the example <laughs> you laid out. It feels like that the, what the Democrats had concluded was that Bernie Sanders was a, a real threat to the future viability of their party. But the difference is the Republicans don't, they obviously don't think Trump is a threat to the future of their party. If they did, they wouldn't defend him and cheerlead him every time he gets indicted or, (laughs) you know, something bad happens to him. This is the strangest thing. Donald Trump has the greatest enemies because every time something bad happens to him, they all come to his defense and, uh, and tell about how terrible he's been treated. And so it, you know, and I and I think it's because some of these folks are trying to um, protect their future viability. You know, maybe they've 
at least internally somewhere drawn some conclusion that if this doesn't work out, I got to remain viable for the future. So I guess I have to, I have to do this. The problem is, and I'm sure this is what Chris Christie thinks, you know, rolling over for him in the middle of a race that you're supposedly running against him uh, makes you seem weak and silly when you're arguing that the party should move past him, but you're willing to cheerlead him, you know, when he gets in trouble for the reasons that you think we should move past him. I mean, it's a, it's illogical. Uh, I'm certain from Christie's perspective, which is why he's still, still planning to stay in the campaign. Um, so I, you know, for DeSantis specifically, you know, his, his movements here to me are very fascinating. You know, if it doesn't work out in Iowa or he's way back or he finishes third, I assume he can't continue or won't continue. He's not going to do well in New Hampshire. Uh, and then you've got to make the decision about when to endorse, who to endorse. And my presumption is he's going to endorse Trump and try to do it at a time that it, that it makes a, a difference, just the way Chris Christie did, frankly, back in 2016. What impact at all could the legal kind of, as Don Rumsfeld said, the known unknowns? We know we know that a lot of the, the at least the indictments have helped Trump, at least with the Republican overall electorate. But if he faces the prospect of a conviction, uh, if he, you know, like there's some logistical issues at play that that could come down the pike in 2024. Uh, how Teflon is Trump? Could that be a be a wrinkle in his in his uh, momentum? I well, I have assumed that if a conviction happens before he wraps up the primary or before the convention, that it will make no difference at all that the Republicans who are voting or who would be delegates at the convention uh, will not have any trouble going ahead and nominating him. Uh, there may be some grumbling about it and somebody may raise it at the convention, but I, I have suspected it won't make a difference. Now, I do think that in the general election, uh, these things are already somewhat limiting for him, but I, I would think be, being a convicted felon, there's at least a cohort, maybe small, but a cohort of Republicans and you know, independents who probably don't like Joe Biden at all, for them, that would be a deal breaker. And the thing is, the election could be quite close. I mean, Trump's gotten 46 percent of the vote in two elections. Fair bet he could get 46 percent again. But if you're a convicted felon, do you lose one or two percent? And is that is that what keep, kept you from winning the election? Maybe. So I, I, I have believed for some time that it makes no difference to the primary, but there, there's likely a cohort of voters who just don't want to walk into that booth and vote for a convicted felon. Well, I mean, that's um, and, got a shot. I mean, I think if you if you took a another another universe, someone who just heard the, the, this part of the conversation, that if you're a convicted felon, may, maybe you lose a point. Maybe you lose two points. <laughs> I, I mean, know. that would be stunning. Anyone who's covered politics would find that absolutely stunning. But... Maybe it's more. I mean, there, there were early on, there were some polls that showed it was a lot more than I'm, you know, maybe I'm undershooting it. Uh, but I, but I do think it's a it's a problem for them. And I and there won't be any way to solve it either. You know, I don't right, think. Right. I mean, it's just it's just a sign of our polarized, polarized politics is a shorthand for it. But uh, that is sort of an incredible moment we're in where no one is like going to change their mind. Very few people end up changing their minds at the most significant thing that could happen to a, a politician, to, to, to a yeah. candidate. Uh, what is your you know, when you look ahead to a possible Trump matchup or not? There yet, but if that is the the, the matchup, uh, who who has the advantage? How would you how would you assess the odds on that? Well, I would assume that the incumbent president has the advantage because I would assume any incumbent president would have an advantage. Now, it is true Biden is an incumbent is in worse shape from a job approval perspective than any other incumbent facing reelection in the modern era. So you have to take that into account. Um, but the flip side of that, of course, is the, the issues we just discussed with Trump. So they, they both have significant warts and problems they have to deal with. But incumbent presidents do have a lot of built in advantages. I, I personally think the race is purely a 50 50 proposition. I, I I really wouldn't know how to bet it today. Honestly, I don't bet uh, on uh, politicians, only on horses. You know, I'm from Kentucky, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think it is purely a 50 50 proposition and some of that uncertainty that i have is wrapped up in these third parties and whether they can actually get on the ballot because it's quite obvious from the polling right now that some of these folks might attract some votes maybe not as many votes as you think based on the polling that you're seeing today that those numbers could drift down but third parties attracting four five six seven percent of the vote you know it could make a difference in a very close election i do think that trump's uh base I think is in more solid shape than Biden's base right now. That's worth something. Uh, 
but at the same time, I think we learned in 2022 that the independent voters of this country, the swing voters who dislike Biden's policies, do not think they've helped, in fact, think they've hurt, still are willing to vote Democrat because they have concerns about Donald Trump or the people that he has brought into politics. We saw this happen across the map in 22. I remember sitting on the set at CNN being stunned at the exit polls. It didn't look right to me. It's like, I don't like Biden. I don't like his policies. They're not helping me. They're not helping the country. Yet I voted Democrat in this Senate race. Well, now they're now they're going to be confronted with not an indirect choice, but a direct choice about what made them uncomfortable. And so I think I think you can't forget that lesson that we that we just learned. So it's a real it is a real toss up situation. I think both of these guys will have a heck of a time getting anywhere near 50 percent of the vote. And uh, and. You know, some of these states that were so close last time are destined to be close this time. And honestly, man, if you look at the polling right now and you look at the dissatisfaction with Biden, you could see a world where Trump reels them all back in because people have just had it with Biden. If I were putting a rosy spin on Biden's prospects right now, it would be something like he rallies the Democrats on the issues of democracy and abortion. And somewhere along the way, the economy starts to get better enough to the point where people begin to say, I think we're over it now. I think I think we fixed it. If that were to somehow dovetail at the right time, you could see where his job approval would probably tick up a little bit and put him in a little bit better position. Um, But I think that's the race that Biden's in is, yeah, I've probably got the issues to rally my core Democrats, but will people begin to think think of the economy as better or improving in time for me to benefit from it? Or is it going to happen just a tick too late, which is, by the way, happened in other presidential races in <laughs> in the past where, you know, economic uh, conditions improved too late for an incumbent. George H.W. Bush is, is a good example of that. How effective is the democracy message and how resonant is this? Is this going to mean that, that it, it worked in 2022? It was actually yeah. I think, one of the secret weapons that the Democrats had uh, in, 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 in discrediting a lot of these Republican candidates. Uh, Though, if you look at the polls, the economy is immigration top issue. January 6th, democracy, not not as much. Where where do you think that? Uh, do you think Biden in his speeches this week in, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, campaign speech in South Carolina at the Mother Emanuel Church, they were effective in getting that, getting that uh, message out there? I, I think it's effective for some Democrats, um, and certainly it motivates them to hold their nose in some cases and stick with their team. Uh, I, I do think his message about democracy and the soul of the nation and those those phrases we've become familiar with are complicated by the fact that uh, the left is currently engaged <laughs> in a massive amount of turmoil uh, over uh, these protests that we're seeing and this energy inside the progressive left to be anti-Israel. And I, so I think his... And some of the outright anti-Semitism we're seeing, it's not coming from the right. It's it's coming from the left. So when he talks about unity and and, uh, you know, eliminating hate and soul of the nation, and there might be some voters who say, yeah, I agree with you, but you need to get your own house in order because it, it's not the Republicans who are out right now chasing uh, Jewish kids around college campuses and out of dining halls and stuff. And so. I do think it's complicated for him, but basically, yes, I think it's a motivating issue for for Democrats, as is abortion, uh, which we saw work in the 2023 uh, off-year elections we just had. I live in Kentucky. It worked in the Kentucky governor's race, for instance, not thought of as a as a big Democratic state, but certainly some of the debate around abortion was certainly motivating for Democratic donors and turnout. So he's got those issues, I think, that will reel in some of the base, but Swing voters, independent voters, there's a lot of economically focused voters out there who those things are secondary. Some of those people are previously pretty reliable Democrats, you know. I'm thinking working class Americans. I'm thinking working class blacks, working class Hispanics. Uh, I don't think they're feeling too hot about his economic policies right now and, and, and what it's like to, to live paycheck to paycheck in his America. We're wrapping things up here on the inside 
the newsroom uh, with Scott Jennings live from O'Hare Airport. I wonder, you mentioned you mentioned Andy Bashir, and you know that you know you're you're based in Kentucky, and he was one of the big you know, Democratic success success stories. You know, at least mm-hmm. trace himself as sort of a kind of down the middle guy. Um, same as Fetterman's Josh Shapiro and, and Governor of Pennsylvania, Democrat, kind of doing the same thing. I wonder if we're going to see more of those figures in the Democratic Party in years to come. But my question is two, twofold. Does Bashir have a future in national politics? I thought I saw today that he may have started a PAC uh, to mm. get more involved in the kind of the national conversation, which is uh, notable. Uh, but also, who else would you, you mentioned Fetterman, but who, then as, as someone who just kind of went against the, the left, but who do you think has a national talent? Who, who do you think in the post-Biden uh, world on both sides? Let's, let's start with the Democrats, but also who, who on the Republican side do you think are, are future contenders? Yeah, I think uh, some of these Democratic governors do have possible futures. You know, Bashir's an interesting guy. You know, he, we're the same age. Uh, in fact, we were 16. We went to a summer high school program together. His family's from Dawson Springs. My family is from Dawson Springs, very small town. Uh, I've known him, you know, most of my whole life. And uh, and he's a smart guy. Um, they ran a really disciplined campaign. Of course, they had all the money. They outspent Cameron by $20 million. And and if there's one thing that Bashir's are good at, it's shaking people down. Believe me, these people know how to get money. And he had it. And, and that's what you got to do. You know, when you're a Democrat in Kentucky, you've got to have that financial advantage. And, and he did do it. But they were very disciplined and they used the issues that they had to use at the time of the campaign that they needed to use. them. it was it was a well-run campaign. I, you know, I, I take my hat off to them as a practitioner watching what he did. Now, does this brand of all shucks, nonpartisanism play nationally, you know, in the Democratic Party? I I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like our national politics is more demanding of people who are willing to be more strident and more confrontational. It's our local politics that have been rewarding some of these folks who at least preach a, an ideology of non-ideology. You know, Bashir loved to present himself as sort of this non-ideological technocrat who hands out water when something bad happens and hugs your grandma. I mean, that that's basically was his message. Does that translate to a national federal race i don't know i'm not not sure about it but uh you can't deny that it was a it was a good victory for him and i think they've got a few other guys Wes Moore seems pretty talented to me they've got some other governors as well so you know they're not they're not without a bench i you know i, I don't advise them god forbid <laughs> but but i hope they i hope they go a more moderate route than giving in to what i see on the the far left flank of their party, which is a lot of hate, a lot of divisiveness, and just frankly, a lot of disdain for American values. I mean, it feels like it's growing on the on the left progressive flank in this country. And I, I don't want that for their party. On In our party, you know, I think DeSantis is young and we'll be back. I think Haley is young and we'll be back if they don't work out here in this uh, primary. I think we also have some some other governors out there. And, and of course, you also have the next order of people who uh, kind of are following in the Trump footsteps. Josh Hawley, obviously, is ambitious, people like that. You know, we were talking earlier about whether there's enough Republicans left who might want to nominate a pre-Trump Republican for president. Well, by 28 or 32, that's totally off the board, you know, it, it probably. Uh, totally off the board. That you won't, the pre-Trump party is going to be zero. So, I mean, yeah. Is that was that, so, that kind of what you're saying? So, so that so my my point is the next order of of people are gonna are gonna necessarily be from the from the Trump era forward, and uh, and yeah. some of them, uh, you know, some of them are in Washington right now, and and some of them aren't. Uh, but I I don't know that anyone's ever going to be able to recreate the magic, <laughs> if that's what you want to call it, that he somehow found and figured out. I mean, he's a unique person, uh, and uh, and love it or hate it. You just have to marvel at how unique, it, how uniquely wrapped up in him it is. And it's hard for me to imagine somebody inheriting that. And, you know, people will try to emulate it. People will try to run in the vein of it. But, you know, it's hard, hard to imagine someone being a direct heir to it. And how it diffuses itself in the future will be kind of fascinating, frankly. So you're not bullish on a J.D. Vance, Elise Stefanik, possible 2028 ticket. That, that, the... Oh, oh, those guys. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, I I'm not talking about. I'm just saying that that, that that those are folks who have definitely tried to grasp. Well, that, the, that's the that's the, the next. But that's the what when I that's the next order of Republican leaders. 
you know, they're not the same kind of personality, but they certainly embody the same kind of policy movement in the party, right. you know, where you're sort of more accepting of labor unions and, and, uh, anti-corporate, yeah. you know, I mean, these kinds of things that we've, we've sort of depended on Republicans for pro pro business, anti, anti-union, you know, pro free trade, you know, that that's, but, but it's, it's not <laughs> just substance in the case of uh, the reason I mentioned Vance and Stefanik is that they're in your face, like Stefanik, yeah. not just that in your face, like Stefanik called the prisoners who committed violent acts on January 6th, hostages, yeah. hostages on Meet the Press. Uh, Vance certainly is known for, you know, trolling and saying things that are very incendiary as well. That that seems to sell these days. I don't, but I, they're not Trump. They don't have the same, you know, no, no, but, said, but, they don't have the same package. But when we spoke earlier about how you try to communicate in Republican primaries right now, what, what you're describing, what they're doing is less about policy and more about communicating that vibe, that attitude, that uh, I'm going to say what I want to say, even though the media is going to crash down on me for saying it. That's the point. You know, I'm willing I'm willing to provoke them. And that's one of the enduring lessons that Republicans are going to learn from Donald Trump is. You know, the willingness to provoke the media into these outrages, they're looking for that in people. And so, you know, you can you know, Ramaswamy's kind of been a an acolyte of this, you know, constantly trying to provoke the press into these outrages. And, and, um, and so, although you may not be quite the showman that, that Donald Trump is, you can see in Elise and others, that's ultimately the point of it. You know, if you can get meet the press to be mad at you, or you get the New York times to be mad at you, Republicans are going to say, this guy must be doing something right. <laughs> you know? So that's the vibe. That's the attitude they're trying to communicate. Some of them are getting pretty good at it. To be continued. This is the beginning of 2024. I have a feeling it's going to be a very volatile and bumpy uh, path ahead, both on the campaign trail, maybe in the courtroom as as well. Uh, <laughs> yep. Brush up on the legal legal cases uh, ahead as well. Scott, thank you for joining us. I know you're you're in route to Iowa. We'll look forward to seeing you on the CNN's uh, campaign coverage, and uh, good luck trying to get that. I know the weather is uh, it's quite yeah. Messy across if, the country. if anyone out there is in the United Lounge at O'Hare and you want to stop by my booth, please come by. We can have a piece of cheese and a, a tiny tomato together and wait this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone in the lounge got some, some free, you know, subscriber level uh, political right. analysis. So oh, we got a whole again. crowd of people over here, like <laughs> watching <laughs> for free advertising. So uh, thanks Scott again. And just as a, as a, as a little bit of a, a reminder to our audience here at JI, this week we have another good conversation coming up with uh, my colleague, JI executive editor, Melissa Weiss, who will be talking to Israeli economist and CEO of Startup Nation Central, Avi Hassan. He'll be on Thursday, so Thursday at noon, same time, same place here on the Zoom, and uh, look forward to having Avi on to talk with Melissa. Anyway, Scott, thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon, and uh, thanks for joining us on the on the live stream. Thanks, Josh. See you, buddy. Thanks, Scott. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.